Hello, and welcome to this session on using back of the envelope calculations to prioritize interventions with Zachary Robinson. Zach works to identify and prioritize new cause areas for Open Philanthropy's giving. Prior to joining Open Philanthropy, Zach was the Director of Product and Strategy for Ivy Research Council and worked as a management consultant with Bain and Company. He's an alumnus of Deep Springs College and graduated from Stanford with a BS in Mathematical and Computational Science. Please note that there will not be a Q&A session at the end of this talk. Instead, Zach will use the full 25 minutes so that he can go in depth on the topic. Here's Zach. Hi, my name is Zach Robinson and I'm a research fellow at Open Philanthropy. For those of you who aren't familiar with Open Philanthropy or the work we do, Open Phil is basically a foundation. We're trying to do as much good as possible per dollar spent and much of our approach and many of the causes we fund align with the priorities of the broader effective altruism movement. We're analytical and quantitatively driven in the causes we choose to make grants in. And in my role as a research fellow, I do research to help OpenPhil determine what new causes to expand its grant making into in order to maximize our impact. As part of that quantitative approach, we frequently use back of the envelope calculations, also known as BOTEX, which is what I'm here to talk with you about today. Before diving in, I realize some of you may not feel the most mathematically inclined or are just wondering why you decided to spend your weekend going to a talk that basically sounds like a math lecture. So I first want to thank all of you for taking a little leap of faith in joining me. In a few moments, I'll outline what BOTECs are and why I think learning about them is worth your time, regardless of the level of mathematical experience you have. But before that, let me give you a quick roadmap for where we're going. We're going to cover a few things. We'll learn what a Botex is. We'll briefly discuss why Botex matter to the EA community and when they're used. And we'll spend the majority of our time walking through a Botex together and we'll identify some key skills to develop to be successful. So to start at ground zero, many of you quite reasonably may be asking, what is a back of the envelope calculation? The phrase comes from the idea of scribbling out some math on the back of an envelope to get a rough, quick answer. I think there are a few characteristics that define BOTEX from other forms of mathematical reasoning. It's assumption driven. You can make guesses when you don't have the time or possibility to collect all the facts. It's a rough calculation that shouldn't be interpreted literally. It is not 100% accurate or a mathematical proof. There isn't a right answer, although there may be wrong ones. Lastly, the level of detail and accuracy can frequently be scaled up or down depending upon how much time you want to dedicate to flushing it out. Many of us use simple Botex in our everyday life without even realizing it. For example, if you're writing a paper, you might use an assumption like you'll continue to write at the same pace you have been in order to do a rough calculation for how long it'll take to finish. You're probably not going to be 100% accurate, but it's a reasonable guess and you could, find, you could refine your timeline as you continue writing and seeing how long it takes. Now, I don't wanna mislead you by promising every Botech is going to be that simple, but I do think the foundational skills will be accessible to almost everyone in the audience today. I first developed many of these skills back when I was a management consultant, and I learned from people who had non-quantitative majors like anthropology and Russian literature. They were excellent at Botechs, not because they had studied a bunch of math, but because they had learned how to deploy basic mathematical knowledge to address complex problems. So, for wherever you stand on the mathematical spectrum, I think there's some good news and bad news. The good news is, for our purposes today, and for a lot of the Botex I do for my job, 
you don't really need to have much in the way of advanced mathematical knowledge. Well, some basic probability and statistics will help. You mostly just need to know how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide. The bad news is that for all of us who know how to do these basic math functions, being good at Botex is oftentimes a lot less about knowing how to execute on a math problem and much more about knowing how to structure one, choose reasonable assumptions, and communicate what you're doing with other people. Developing Botex skills can be helpful in a variety of situations that are valuable to the EA community. Examples include, where should I donate? For example, should I donate my money to a presidential campaign or should I donate to my favorite charity? How should an organization allocate its resources? Should a nonprofit hire a fundraiser or should they spend the money to fund interventions? How should we prioritize new potential cause areas? For example, addressing COVID compared to existing causes. I've used this style of math almost every day in my professional life. At Open Philanthropy, I've used Botex to look at the impact of potential new causes and interventions and everything from air pollution to education to housing reform, as well as using these skills to write recommendations on what organizations to fund and how much funding we should allocate to them. Even if you don't think you'll eventually be in a career where you'll be using Botex frequently, it can still be useful to have a basic understanding of them so you can understand others' reasoning as they drive many decisions in the EA community. There are a lot of different skills that go into doing Botex well, and we're not going to have time to cover everything today. I'm hoping to give you an introduction that can serve as a foundation to start practicing Botex in other contexts, particularly with an EA lens. In particular, I want to focus on how to make good assumptions and communicate about them effectively, which we'll practice together. We're going to practice these skills by using a Botex to evaluate the effectiveness of a potential philanthropic intervention. While this is inspired by the kind of work you might see at Open Philanthropy, I want to be clear that this is a made-up example with made-up numbers, so please be aware that this, this doesn't represent open philanthropy, open philanthropy's grantees, or any actual academic research, or any other philanthropic or nonprofit organization. And to emphasize that point, we're going to talk about seasonal migration in the fictional nation of Atlantis. Now, for background, you're advising a high net worth individual we'll call Maria. Maria has committed to donating money to help the citizens of Atlantis, who have some of the lowest incomes in the world. Maria currently focuses on giving her money to a charity that redistributes donations to the poorest citizens of Atlantis in rural areas via direct cash transfers. Now, Jada has a nonprofit in Atlantis that helps uh, citizens migrate from rural to urban areas on a seasonal basis for six months per year when it's difficult to grow crops. Because the rural citizens of Atlantis have lower average incomes than citizens in urban centers, this migration helps increase incomes and reduce poverty. Jada's nonprofit currently operates in three rural towns, and she's asking Maria for $1 million to fund an expansion for one year into a fourth town. Maria wants your advice on how to proceed. Let's begin with a step back to do a high-level sketch of the approach we'd use to solve the problem. It's frequently best to structure your problem first, so you can determine what information is relevant and use that to guide your research. If we're looking to make our analysis actionable, we ultimately need to give guidance to Maria on how to spend her money. When thinking about a potential intervention, you'll often want to be thinking in terms of opportunity costs. That means when thinking about funding Jada's nonprofit, we should be comparing that intervention to the best alternative. In this case, we've already been presented with an alternative. Maria can donate money directly to the citizens of Atlantis who have the lowest incomes. Thus, 
One way we could reframe the question would be to move from, should Maria donate to Jada's nonprofit, to, do we expect Jada's nonprofit to cause more good than donating directly to low-income citizens? As a side note, while this particular example is fictional, it's common practice in the EA community to compare interventions to directly donating the funds to persons living in extreme poverty. You might hear this being referred to as a comparison to cash or cash transfers or give directly, which is an organization that transfers money to low-income households, households in low-income nations. One way to answer our question is this. If Maria could simply give $1 million to low-income citizens, should she expect Jada's nonprofit to result in more or less than $1 million in income gains via migration? To answer that question, we can compare how much money Maria could donate to low-income citizens to our expectations of how much income rural citizens could gain from seasonal migration. Expected income gains, in turn, could be seen as a function of how many citizens would migrate as a result of a $1 million donation and how much we'd expect each citizen's income to increase as a result. Now that we've structured the problem, it's time to do some research. We already know that Maria is being asked to donate $1 million, but we need to determine the expected income gains from funding Jada's nonprofit, which we can do by determining the number of people who would be able to migrate as a result of our funding and the expected income gains per citizen. So let's say you talk to Jada and do a little bit of research and you figure out the following. For the number of people who can migrate, we find out that a round-trip bus ticket costs $80, and outside of bus tickets, the charity would require $200,000 to cover other program expenses, such as hiring employees. And for the expected income gains, we find out that the average citizen in each rural town in Atlantis makes $500 per year. The average citizen in the urban city where rural citizens migrate makes $1,000 per year. And Jada's nonprofit currently operates in three rural towns in Atlantis. For the citizens who migrated from one of these three towns, they made as much money as the citizens in urban Atlantis for the six-month duration of the migration period. For the citizens in the other two towns, they closed 25% of the income gap between rural citizens of Atlantis and urban citizens of Atlantis for the six-month migration period. For the moment, it's unclear why there were different results for the different towns, although it seems like some of the citizens weren't able to find jobs in the city or they, were, they found low-paying jobs. Now, let's pause. That's a lot of information. It's easy to get overwhelmed, so let's continue to use our framework where we have split this into two separate problems, one for the number of migrants and one for the expected income gains. We'll begin with the number of migrants. Again, I recommend laying out your formulas first to organize your thoughts. We know that the number of citizens who will migrate is equivalent to the number of bus tickets we can buy. So we can divide the amount of money we spend on bus tickets by the cost per ticket. To calculate the amount spent to purchase bus tickets, we also know that the first part of a potential donation will cover the overhead costs and the rest will go to tickets. The result looks like this. If we start with a $1 million donation and spend $200,000 on overhead, we end up with $800,000 to spend on tickets. If each ticket costs $80, we then have 10,000 tickets we can buy. Now, we know that we can pay for 10,000 individuals to migrate, 
So let's look at the second part of the problem, where we need to focus on how much we expect the incomes of each of these individual migrants to increase. This time, the answer isn't particularly clear. The seasonal migration program hasn't been conducted in this new town yet, and the data we have indicates that different towns have seen different results. So what do we do? We have to make an assumption about what the results of launching the program in a new city would be. If you remember, assumptions are a key part of what defines a vote tech. From a communication standpoint, it's important to be clear that you're using an assumption. We're going to use facts to help ensure our assumption is reasonable. But just because we're using facts as inputs doesn't mean that we're certain of our answer. This is an important communication norm to foster within the EA community, particularly when there are complicated calculations that go into something like cause area prioritization. For example, Imagine trying to compare the value of increasing income via migration to saving a life via a bed net, to improving the welfare of farm animals, to reducing existential risks from advanced artificial intelligence. Intelligent people have put in time, effort, and research into coming up with ways to evaluate those and other potential causes. With that being said, I don't think anybody can claim to have the exact mathematical values to allow an objective comparison between two causes. There is a lot of data backing up those assumptions, but there are also a lot of assumptions. And those assumptions, in turn, drive career choices and guide millions of dollars of funding from the EA community. I've seen people make erroneous decisions before because they've unquestionably taken the output of a Bowtech as fact, when, in reality, the person who wrote it was very uncertain about the end output. We should know when that uncertainty exists. And it's important for both writers and readers to be clear where their calculations are coming from. To help us both uh, uh, improve the communication around our assumptions and improve our ability to make better assumptions, I suggest a five-step process. First, acknowledge you're making an assumption. Second, decide how confident you are. Third, identify the range of plausible alternative assumptions. Fourth, Determine whether any of the plausible alternatives could lead to a different answer. Finally, if the answer could change, brainstorm next steps you could take to improve your estimate or have more confidence the answer is correct. Now, let's try this process by making an assumption to determine how much we expect per capita income to increase for each person who migrates. I'm going to make my assumption by leveraging the data we already have on how Jada's nonprofit performed in other towns. If we have two towns that closed 25% of the wage gap and one town that closed 100% of the wage gap, that means that if we give each of the villages equal weight, on average, 50% of the wage gap will have closed. Given we know that urban annual incomes are $1,000 on average and rural incomes are $500, we know that the wage gap is $500 for a year or $250 for the six-month period of migration. If we use our assumption that the migrants will cover 50% of the income gap, then we get an expected value of an income increase of $125 per person over the migration period. Note that there are really two assumptions at play here. One is that Jada's nonprofit will continue to perform in a way that mirrors past performance. And the other is that the average rural income accurately reflect, reflects the migrant population. For the sake of time, we'll focus on the first assumption about Jada's nonprofit for today, 
But as always, it's important to acknowledge that another assumption is being made. Now, let's remember the second step of making an assumption, which is to decide how confident we are in the answer. I'll note that I'm pretty unconfident in this answer. It's based on only three data points, which is small. Moreover, my expected value calculation doesn't actually give me a result that aligns with any historical data. I'm predicting an income increase of 50%, but 0% of the towns saw a 50% increase. Instead, some saw a 25% increase, and one saw a 100% increase. I'm only taking a middle ground approach because I don't have enough information to drive a better hypothesis. These numbers also help me with my third step, which is to identify plausible alternative assumptions. Certainly, it seems plausible that given the actual value could fall anywhere between 25% and 100%, if not an even wider range of our initial data set of three towns, given that uh, our initial data set isn't particularly large. I think there's a lot that could possibly be done to improve this estimate, but we'll save that brainstorming session until after we figure out whether or not it matters. Returning to our overall calculation, it's now straightforward to solve the problem because we have the necessary components. We know that Maria's donation could fund seasonal migration for 10,000 citizens, and we're assuming that each citizen would gain $125 in net income. If we multiply those two numbers together, we get 1.25 million. Given the opportunity cost is Maria donating $1 million directly to low-income citizens, our current expectation is that it is worth it for Maria to fund Jada's nonprofit. One note here, we just took a probabilistic approach to determining our best guess for how much total incomes would increase from migration, also known as calculating an expected value. What we did not do was ask ourselves whether it was more likely than not for Jada's nonprofit to succeed. Indeed, if we just look at the three towns that the nonprofit has operated in thus far, it could be argued that it's more likely than not that only 25% of the income gap could be closed, which may not be enough to justify funding the intervention. But because of the possibility of a high upside event where 100% of the income gap is closed, the expected value can still be high enough to justify the intervention. Using expected values is oftentimes a differentiating feature of effective altruism. Many people in the effective altruist community are willing to bet on low probability, high magnitude interventions or cause areas that have a high expected value. Open philanthropy also takes this approach, which differentiates itself from other foundations that may focus more on grant making opportunities where they are more likely to see a successful result. I've personally recommended grant making opportunities where I think there's less than a 10% chance of success because a success would be so large that the expected value is enough to justify funding an intervention. In other words, we shouldn't just be asking ourselves about the probability of success. We should also be asking ourselves about how good a successful outcome would be. Now, to return to our example, we haven't yet finished all five steps of our process to make good assumptions. We still need to do step four, which is to check whether plausible alternatives would change our answer. To engage with this step, we first need to be clear about what question we're answering. In general, the question that matters is one that is action-oriented, that is, whether or not a specific action should be taken. While making a different assumption would always change our expected income gains for migration, that number itself isn't what we actually care about. 
In this example, the action-oriented question we're concerned with is whether or not Maria should donate to Jada's nonprofit or give that money directly to low-income citizens. That, in turn, hinges on whether or not expected income gains from migration are more or less than the $1 million Maria could donate to low-income citizens. In other words, we only care if our assumption is off enough such that it could change our expectation of whether or not total expected income gains from migration are more or less than $1 million. Let's remember that we previously said that while we made an assumption that migrants could close 50% of the wage gap, a pessimistic alternative would be that only 25% of the wage gap would be closed. As 25% is half of our current estimate of 50%, we'd be having our previous estimated total expected income gains from 1.25 million to 625,000. As 625,000 is less than the $1 million Maria could donate directly, it means that changing our assumption could change our answer to the question of whether or not donating money to Jada's nonprofit is worth it. Now that we've done our fourth step and found that our answer could change if a different plausible assumption were made, we may want to brainstorm ideas for next steps that could help us change our assumption or improve our confidence that we're right. I have some ideas, but before I share them, I'm going to pause for about a minute and give you a chance to come up with some ideas for what kind of research you might do to help here to help Maria make a better decision. All right, I'm going to share a few ideas. This isn't exhaustive and it's fine if you have different thoughts. You could Ask Jada for her opinion on her best guess, although we should be aware of her potential bias. You could also ask Jada if she changed any operational procedures as her nonprofit expanded. For example, maybe the less successful towns were the first towns the nonprofit operated in, and now she's learned more lessons on how to operate effectively, such as by providing assistance to help migrating citizens find jobs. You could look at the characteristics of each of the three towns to determine whether there are differences that could explain the differences in income and see if perhaps one of those towns is particularly similar to the new town where Jada would be expanding. You could see if there's external research from other programs, perhaps ones in other cities or countries from different nonprofits that could indicate what standard income gains from seasonal migration are. And you could determine if there are non-monetary costs or benefits to moving for six months a year. All right, now that we have both an interim conclusion and potential next steps, we'll pause with our example. If you're looking for next steps on how to learn more about Botex, here are some ideas. First, just use them in your life, whether it's figuring out where to make a small donation or just predicting how long it will take you to write your next term paper. There are plenty of situations where we can do small calculations to help guide our decisions. Second, You can read Botex. We have a number of them on the Open Philanthropy website or make your own. Lastly, you should feel free to follow up with me during this conference using Swapcard to discuss Botex or ask questions, or you can talk with others who might also be able to provide coaching and feedback. Thank you all for joining me, and I'm looking forward to connecting to many of you throughout the conference.